Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm your Middle East host, Eli Koaz. And I'm your East Coast host, Evan Gottesman. Although not this week, I'm in San Francisco for the IPF Atid San Francisco launch, which was very successful last night. So we're happy about that. But now we're here to bring you the news and analysis of the week's events in Israel. So Eli, what are we going to talk about this time? So we're going to start with what's recent developments in the Israeli political world. There was actually about two and a half weeks over the uh, the Jewish high holidays where things were very quiet over Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's almost like uh, all the po- politicians became incredibly observant for a few days and there was really not that much to report, but things are kind of back in motion now. Benjamin Netanyahu has to return the mandate to form a government on Wednesday exactly. after Shemini exactly. Atzeret right? Exactly. He has less than a week. So during all these holidays when politicians seemingly, at least in the media, they weren't, they weren't doing that much, the clock was ticking on Netanyahu's time to form, attempt to form a government. He has, as you mentioned, until next Wednesday. And afterwards, uh, the odds are Though it isn't a requirement, the odds are that President Rivlin, once the mandate is returned to him, will give Benny Gantz an opportunity to try to form a coalition. Now, in the past, when Netanyahu has tried to form a coalition, he's run right up to the deadline and he has uh, requested an extension. And you can have a 14-day extension. In this case, is that not considered likely that he'll receive that? It's considered unlikely because um, this is a different situation. Um, he doesn't really have a clear route to government. He's trying, what it looks like is he's trying all, he's trying a bunch of different tactics to try to place a blame on others, on other parties, on other, on leaders of other parties, especially of Victor Lieberman and Benny Gantz, to try to blame them for the lack of the ability to, to form a government. He's also, interestingly enough, uh, putting blame on Benny Gantz's partners in the Blue and White Party, predominantly Yair Lapid and Bogi Alon, to try to kind of cause a rift in Blue and White. Uh, we saw a report today of him trying to um, open to giving uh, Gantz a rotation, even if Gantz were to leave the Blue and White Party. So he's really trying to kind of cause rifts in other parties, while at the same time trying to buy time to kind of push towards another election. But I don't think he'll get an extension just because of the political situation where Gantz, he has to be granted that extension by the president, and he can only be granted that if the president sees that there is no alternative or that there's a real chance here of a government being formed. And as we'll talk about in a bit, Netanyahu doesn't really have much progress that he can point to on that regard. Now, I have to wonder if Netanyahu's desire to have Gantz break off from Kaholavan and join him is really grounded in any kind of reality because this has been Netanyahu's tack through the entire coalition negotiations that he wants to break up Kaholavan and that's going to be his route to a government. But it seems like Gantz has held pretty fast. He's refused Netanyahu's proposal for a government which was based on essentially a recommendation by President Rivlin for a formula for unity government between Likud and Kachol Levan. And he's sticking to that position. He, he doubled down on that 
this week. And, uh, you know, I see like what you're saying with Netanyahu blaming Yair Lapid and trying to keep open a relationship with Gantz, but it seems like it's one side and he's not having his overtures reciprocated. It does. And I, and I agree with you. This was just a report of what Netanyahu was uh, supposedly open to and trying to do. Netanyahu, obviously you can't take his legal troubles out of the equation. The pending indictments, at least one indictment is expected in December, but we'll have to wait and see. But that's obviously on Netanyahu's head. Um, and that's a main reason why even throughout all this negotiation, Netanyahu has not been willing to even entertain the idea of leaving uh, this right-wing bloc that he assembled the day after elections to be negotiating on behalf. Uh, we talked about on previous podcasts, the bloc of the 55 right-wing seats that include the Likud, Yamina, the coalition of right-wing parties which recently broke up, and the ultra-Orthodox parties, United Toward Judaism and Shas. And he's really... Right, we, we should, we mm-hmm. should clarify for our listeners... Typically, when a Israeli when an Israeli political leader is negotiating in coalition negotiations, they're negotiating on behalf of just the political party that they lead. So this is a really non-traditional move by Netanyahu to try and say that he's not only representing his own Likud party, but he's representing all of these other factions. I wonder now also how airtight this right wing block that he claims to command and that he got them to kind of sign over the negotiation rights to really is these days, because we saw recently that the leaders of the religious parties of Shas and United Torah Judaism have said that they would now be willing to consider sitting with Yair Lapid, which had been a big no-no for them in the past because of Yair Lapid's very staunch secularist agenda. I mean, during the campaign, Avigdor Lieberman, who is the one who brought out this confrontation between secular and religious Israelis as his ostensible reason for bringing Israel into a second election. But during the campaign, you saw the leaders of the religious parties saying, no, no, Lieberman isn't our number one rival. It's still Lapid. And now they're saying, well, maybe they would be willing to sit with him after all. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And I think um, Gantz is looking at a bunch of different options we saw like earlier this week, Netanyahu came forward with that proposal that you briefly touched on for a unity government, calling it Benny Gantz's national responsibility to accept. Eli, can you explain what that proposal entails? So for the most part, this proposal was just pretty similar to what the president's uh, Rivlin's proposal was, a power, power sharing like agreement where uh, Netanyahu would start prime minister and bearing whether an indictment would happen that would cause him to take a leave of ab- absence, but it would be part of a r- rotation agreement. But again, here he was not willing to talk about uh, like parting from his block with the hard right parties and the ultra orthodox parties, which is kind of a deal breaker both for Blue and White and for Lieberman. Uh, he also spoke about keeping the status quo in terms of religion and state issues, something that also uh, Vigdor Lieberman, his party, and Kacholavan have been adamantly against. So, really, just it was kind of like a pointless proposal, a proposal to try to place blame on the other side. Not sure how successful 
it was, but Gantz the, almost immediately said that this is a proposal that it's impossible for him to accept. So for Gantz, uh, considered that such a proposal really a betrayal uh, to his voters, and he he received major support from uh, the other leaders of his party. And so I think uh, we'll have to see here what happens in the next few days, because we're seeing more and more reports that Lieberman and Gantz have some are working behind the scenes together. We've even seen reports that what Gantz will seek to do is to even form a government uh, without Likud, a temporary government that doesn't require to have more, more than 60 seats, but it does require a majority to pass, like a vote to approve for the government to actually form. And so that is something that could be done with Lieberman and with the other left-wing parties. And Benny Gantz would need for parties that aren't in the government, presumably like the constituent parties of the joint list, the Israeli Arab parties, to block votes of no confidence in the government to try and topple this kind of minority coalition. Yeah, exactly. So this was reported yesterday on uh, Channel 13, the second biggest uh, news network in Israel. And yeah, so that would be a government where you would need the outside backing of, of the Arab parties. And it's something that Netanyahu has really been hammering this home that Gantz is, even during the election campaign, that Gantz is looking to form a government with uh, the Arab parties. Something that Gantz definitely isn't looking for, but in terms of forming a government, if this could work, if Lieberman would be open to it, I think it is one of his only options because he's not going to have an easy time as well. If it, if it was difficult and impossible for Netanyahu, it's not going to be that much easier for Gantz. But again, he doesn't have the the legal issues, and he'll be there will be more pressure because of Netanyahu's failure. This is kind of the position that he wanted to be at right now. Right. That was the whole calculus with trying to get Netanyahu to be the person who would go first in forming a government and demonstrate once and for all that Netanyahu doesn't have a mandate to form a government. This minority coalition idea that you've brought up is an interesting prospect, and it's one that we've talked about on the podcast before. It would seem that in doing something like that, that Gantz and his partners would be putting a lot of pressure on Likud because, as you mentioned, Gantz isn't looking for a coalition with the Arab parties. He's not necessarily against a coalition with parties like Labor and the Democratic Union, but he sees his natural partners as being Likud, a Likud without Netanyahu, but Likud nonetheless. And for Likud, they don't want to see a government necessarily with these left-wing parties. And that would probably put a lot of pressure within Likud to get Netanyahu out. If he's the only thing that's uh, preventing them from having a center-right or right-wing government, then, you know, he he eventually is going to look like more of a liability than a benefit to the people within Likud. So if that's something that comes to pass, it will be very interesting to see how people within Likud react to it. Yeah, and we saw even when Netanyahu suggested the possibility of primaries in the Likud, how quickly his main rival, Gidon Sar, was to jump on the opportunity, tweeting that he was ready for the challenge. And we could just imagine a scenario where Kaholavan forms a minority coalition with Labour and the Democratic Union, with 44 seats with the outside support of Israel Betenu and the, the joint list. 
can only imagine how the Likud would, or like lawmakers in the Likud would react to such a reality. It wouldn't look good for Netanyahu, to say the least. Right. And it's, of course, a lot of factors have to fall into place exactly as Gantz or whoever is conceiving of this minority government envisions them, because there are a lot of hurdles that we have to cross in order to see a scenario like this play out. I mean, Lieberman, more than really anyone in Israeli politics, has been especially strident about his opposition to the politicians in the joint list and the alliance of Israeli Arab parties. So even though they wouldn't be in the government, uh, for him to operate in a way that's benefiting from their support, you know, that's a big threshold for him to cross. It's not impossible. He is a clearly a very clever politician, but he also has his own ideology. He's stuck to his guns when it comes to secularism in this round. Obviously, he's changed his beliefs or he's changed the way he operates around his beliefs before because he sat with the ultra-Orthodox in the past and now he's stuck to this line that he won't sit with them. But we'll have to see where that goes. It's a tough time for Netanyahu to be dealing with all of this because Israel is also in a very tenuous uh, security and diplomatic situation uh, vis-a-vis its neighbors. Before we move on, I just want to remind everyone that deadline for Netanyahu to form a government is October 24th. That is next Thursday. That is the day that the mandate will most likely be passed back to President Rivlin. And uh, he's unlikely to give Netanyahu an extension because of the reasons that we mentioned and probably likely to pass that mandate to Benny Gantz. And speaking to people last night at our IPF Fatigue Young Professionals launch here in San Francisco, one question I got a lot was what the timeline looks like going forward, because now we have to be uh, prepared for this really unprecedented possibility of a third election, as well as keeping track of Netanyahu's legal troubles. So the way things currently fall, if Netanyahu... He he passes back the mandate on Wednesday and then Gantz goes through the full coalition negotiation period that he's allotted and doesn't form a government that I believe would bring elections to sometime in March 2020. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that's right. And as far as Netanyahu's legal proceedings, what is the schedule that people can look ahead to in terms of following that? So this is uh, where it kind of becomes tricky because after the hearing, which happened earlier this month, where Netanyahu's lawyers were able to make their case and present new evidence or evidence that they th- that hasn't been considered in uh, the investigations. The responsibility really now is with the Attorney General, uh, Vichai Mandelblit. And it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of pressure on him to make that decision and to decide whether or not Netanyahu will be indicted Reports have indicated that it will likely happen in December. It could happen any day, though. It's really at his discretion. Uh, I've heard that it can take up to six months. I think thus far, it's clear that Mandelblit definitely hasn't been rushing, and he is taking his time. But I expect that with uh, the extension that Netanyahu requested for the hearing, I expect that we'll, there will be uh, a decision made Uh, by the end of this calendar year. And that's something that is clearly important to follow in parallel with the political and elections track because it's going to play directly into it. And all of this is happening 
at a really sensitive time for Netanyahu from a diplomatic and security perspective. Netanyahu has always tried to cast himself as Israel's master diplomat. And of course, as Israel's prime minister, he has to you know, take charge of the country's very sensitive security affairs. And a lot has been said about the American abandonment of the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces recently, who sort of on a whim, President Trump uh, left out in the open in the face of a Turkish invasion of northern Syria. And that was something that Israelis saw as certainly being contrary to their interests and, and their position in the Middle East, not to mention the serious humanitarian concerns that the Turkish incursion brought on. And now Israel is also dealing with kind of a sensitive situation with Russia after Netanyahu spent so much time campaigning on his being in another league and showing these posters of himself with Modi from India and with Trump and with Putin. I mean, Putin after Trump was like the guy who Netanyahu most liked to be seen alongside. And now we have a situation where there is a 26-year-old Israeli tourist, uh, Nama Issachar, who's been held in Russia for six months and was recently sentenced to seven and a half years in prison for carrying, I think, nine and a half grams of marijuana. Yeah, so that's in a less, checked bag less than half an ounce in, of yeah, less than half an ounce of marijuana. Yeah, and it was in her checked bag as she was going through a stopover in Moscow. Exactly, she was flying like, back from India to Israel. Uh, she presumably, I think it was, she took advantage of Aeroflot's cheaper flights than El Al. The authorities inspected her her bags and found found the drugs, and obviously it's not a traditional sentence, almost 10 years in jail for smuggling what is not considered drug trafficking or dealing by any means. So, uh, But we found out that she's being used by the Russians as a pawn to a bigger story that many were not familiar of, but it has to do with a Russian hacker, Alexei Berkov, um, was an IT specialist who was arrested in Israel in 2015 at the request of Interpol. And uh, he's wanted in the U.S. for embezzlement charges and some like big credit card scheme. The U.S. want him extradited from Israel uh, to the United States. And the Russians want him back in Russia. So I think uh, their strategy was let's arrest this I won't say innocent because she did something wrong, but let's just take advantage of this situation where we should let Naama Issachar off with a small fine. She's already served, you mentioned, half a year in jail. But instead, they said, let's use this as a situation to resolve this Alexei Berkov hacker situation. Right. And every, every level of this is disturbing because... First of all, the United States put in their extradition request to Israel before the Russians did. So it seems at this point that Israel is going to follow through and hand over Burkov to the United States. But the use of Nama Issachar as sort of human collateral in this thing is not befitting of a friendly government. And yet that's how Netanyahu presented Putin as as his friend or, or as a partner that, that he could manage throughout the campaign and throughout the way he's managed his presentation of himself as Israel's master diplomat. And if the Israeli government can't secure the release of a young tourist who was caught with 
nine and a half grams of pot in a stopover in the airport, it doesn't really bode well when Netanyahu has a request on something with far more expansive consequences for Israel, such as the situation in Syria, uh, where Netanyahu has managed a relationship with Russia and the Russians have begrudgingly turned a blind eye to Israel bombing Russia's allies in the Syrian conflict. There was a report recently in Al Monitor about the prospect that Russia may be a little more discriminating and choosing which Israeli actions it permits in Syria in the future. And they have every reason to feel emboldened by the U.S. exit from northern Syria. The Kurdish-led SDF has tried to now strike a deal with the Russians because they are the arbiter in this arena now. And Israel is kind of left at their mercy. So this story about uh, Nama Issachar is very upsetting, first and foremost, for, for herself, for her family and her friends. But it really doesn't speak to any kind of positive developments for Israel in the future in its own relationship, a difficult relationship uh, with Russia and with other actors in the Middle East. And, and there were signs of this breakdown coming along the way that uh, Netanyahu was treated by Putin when he visited Russia before the September election, having to wait three hours before he got to speak with him and Putin admonishing him for the Jordan Valley annexation plan, which the Russians were typically, at least in their meetings with Netanyahu, not publicly talking about the Palestinian issue. So it's kind of a brave new world for Israel to be navigating in the Middle East region. And the United States isn't there to, to arbitrate or to referee as they might have in the past. So, Yeah, so all this def definitely doesn't work in Netanyahu's favor as the, the coalition negotiations are continuing as, and as the mandate passes over, presumably to Benny Gantz next week. And obviously we wish that Namai Sahar is that situation is resolved as quickly as possible and she gets back to Israel, uh, to her family, where I think she belongs. Before we end, for all our listeners, we really hope you enjoy the podcast. We would love if you could uh, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening, and it would be much appreciated. Yeah, and we, we really appreciate that support. It helps bump up the podcast and help us bring you the content that you enjoy. And I want to thank all our listeners, including all of our listeners who came to our two events over the past week. It was great to get to meet some of you yesterday, and we hope to see you at our programs again in the future, wherever you're listening from. So thanks again for tuning in to Israel Policy Pod, and we'll catch you next week. Yalla, bye.